Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into all the topics that we are discussing about the game we love. I'm Ian McGarry and with me as always is transfer guru Duncan Castles. On today's pod, we'll be bringing you up-to-date news on Arsenal and the potential sale of one of their key players this summer, as well as latest news on the European market, including Bayern Munich and their pursuit of Kai Havertz, Juventus, and of course, some news on Project Restart, which will be as scheduled um, almost uh, six days from now. Uh, and of course, we'll round off with your favourite, the Donkey Award of the Week. Duncan, it's our understanding that um, Hector Bellerin, the Spanish international who, of course, plays at Arsenal, um, is someone who is available for transfer. It's a story that you broke on the Transfer Window podcast, I think, around a year ago uh, in the summer window last year where you um, said that your understanding was that they would allow Bellerin to become fit because obviously he has been affected by a bad injury, uh, prove his fitness, and then they would look to replace him with a younger right-back. But part of the financial structure of Arsenal would be to sell the player who's contracted until 2023. He's 25 years old. Our understanding is that Inter Milan and Paris Saint-Germain have both registered interest in the player. And the player himself is willing to move away from London. Duncan, this is um, becoming a little bit like deja vu, I think, for Arsenal fans, where they see a player whom they have recruited, developed and uh, made into a very, very um, effective and also uh, desirable international footballer but then are willing to sell. Yeah, the, I mean, the story we broke on the podcast, I think it was last June, was that Arsenal were looking for a young right-back in that summer transfer window who would come into the squad and uh, be developed alongside Bellerin while he was re- recovering um, and reinstating himself in the first team following cruciate ligament surgery. Um, with the idea of selling Bellerin this summer for a substantial transfer fee and uh, and allowing that young right-back to take over from him. Obviously, a lot has changed at Arsenal since then. They have a different coach. Um, they, I think, more importantly than the different coach, however, is that they look very much like missing out on Champions League football for another season. Uh, they have a chance because of Project Restart and because of the um, unpredictable uh, effects that will have on performances of teams uh, to close what is currently a eight-point gap to fourth-place Chelsea and a five-point gap to fifth-place Manchester United. But they're in ninth at present. Um, and you'd have to say that the, the the rational calculation going into the summer window is no Champions League football for Arsenal again, potentially no Europa League football. Therefore, a club that has substantial financial difficulties because it has missed Champions League for several seasons now is going to have to adjust its books appropriately. Um, that stance of marketing uh, discreetly, Bellerin, remains. Um, I'm told they're looking for a fee of around 40 million euros for the player. Um, Obviously, they would have been looking for a higher fee than that a year ago, but um, such are the circumstances of the transfer market that um, it looks like it's going to be difficult to obtain substantial fees for players in Bayerian's category. Um, A right back a good age, but the money, the major money in this window looks like it's going to be for very young players with perhaps 10 years um, 
return on uh, their their careers if you're signed by a club. Therefore, we see Jadon Sancho as a hundred million euro plus target. We see the offer um, for Ansu Fati at Barcelona, with Manchester United being one of the clubs interested in Ansu Fati as well as Jadon Sancho um, at a hundred million euros plus a fifty million euro performance-related bonus, and that's for a 17-year-old. That's where the, the big money seems to be in the market. You mentioned Inter as a, as a club who are interested in him. This would fit with Antonio Conte's um, policy of bringing in experienced, ready-made performers to improve his squad. Um, obviously, Inter have been one of the clubs prominent in using the English market and taking uh, experienced players from the English market. They are in a position where they might have substantial fee, funds coming in for Lautaro Martinez if Barcelona can um, raise the resources they require to make that deal happen. And we're talking 111 million euros for that uh, transfer because Inter are saying they, they will only sell uh, if the release clause is, is met. Inter have the advantage that other Italian clubs have, which we've talked about in the podcast several times, of beneficial tax laws, which allow them um, to basically um, give a, a higher net level of pay to players coming to Italy from outside Serie A and Bayern would fit in that category. So you can see um, that being a viable potential move for them. Um, I think it's worrying for Arsenal in that uh, Bayerin had, had re-established himself in the team. He was very much Arteta's first choice at, at right-back. Ainsley Maitland-Niles had played a good chunk of the season before that, but had been left on the bench um, towards the end of uh, the the period of the of the Premier League before we went into um, lockdown and the, and the league was suspended. Um, there is not uh, uh, an obvious second choice uh, right back in the squad who you can promote into that first place position. I think um, Arteta used Socrates there in one of the, the final games that Arsenal played before uh, the, the season was suspended. And you can't see Socrates as being the uh, a reliable option at right back for an Arteta team through the course of an entire season. So they would need to, you would expect, bring a player in to replace Bayerin and um, that will, uh, I think, not be an easy task and, and intriguing to see what kind of figure they go for, whether they attempt to take advantage of, of COVID and, and pick up a player, for example, from the championship, from one of the, the struggling clubs who is a, is a, is a highly rated right back um, to fit into that slot or um, or go for something that you would normally expect them to pursue if their finances weren't as difficult as they are at present. It would be interesting to see Socrates in dialogue with the club, but that's another matter, obviously, a philosophical question. Um, <laughs> certainly is worrying, though, Duncan, for Arsenal fans, um, because unlike an Arsenal team of you know, 10 years ago, um, there aren't that many players that Arsenal fans will look at in the current first 11 and say, he's indispensable, you know, we can't sell him, he's the future, whatever. But you've got someone like Bellerin who has been a very, very consistent performer um, over the course of his time at the club. You've also got the likes of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, whose future is in doubt, whose contract expires in one year's time, um, doubts over Alexander Lacazette as well. And you look at the club and think, well, are they, are they going forward or are they going backwards? Because if they were being forced into the financial situation of selling the players whom are the most valuable, and by that I mean in football terms, but also in financial terms, then how do Arsenal make up for that and recruit better in order to make themselves competitive, both domestically and in European terms? Yeah, I think what you see with Arsenal, it's a, it's a squad where, as we've talked about in the podcast before, a lot of money has been put into established players. Um, a lot of salary 
has gone on Obama Young, uh, Mesut Ozil, who is it seems still refusing to leave and still refusing to to be moved out. So it looks like they are stuck with that salary. Obama Young, I think they could certainly get him off the books if they wanted to. Um, to get that salary away, and and there is a there's an interest obviously from Obama Young's part moving to to Spain, where Barcelona and Real Madrid have looked at doing that deal. But how much can you raise um, for a transfer fee for the player, um, and how much damage do you do to the effectiveness of the team by taking the leading scorer out? Um, they still have the problem with Henrik Mkhitaryan, another player who's on um, very substantial wages, has been on loan at Roma, um, but will Roma be in a position to uh, to, to keep um, those wages off Arsenal's book going forward? Essentially, they've structured themselves in a way with a lot of emphasis put on immediate results that haven't returned um, Champions League football for them. That I think they're they're hit particularly hard with COVID um, and with the um, uh, the reduction, massive reduction in cash flow from uh, playing games in their stadium. Obviously, they have a stadium which has a, a huge match day revenue um, by European standards and by um, Premier League standards. So again, they're disproportionately affected by COVID. Um, and they have owners who have shown no willingness in the past to take money from their own personal funds and inject it into the club uh, to improve their uh, ability to perform in the field. And um, obviously that would be a potential um, route for them to, to navigate this difficult period, which would be for the Cronkies to put money in to allow them to uh, have more flexibility in this transfer market, more flexibility over which players they retain. But um, it's not a path that um, their American owners have wanted to pursue in the past. Stan Kroenke, um, just as an aside, is a major contributor to Donald Trump's campaign. So it might be a good idea if Arsenal fans would like to um, write to him and ask him um, if he would like to look at re-electing Arsenal as potential um, Premier League champions. Instead, <laughs> it's all about back in the right horse, Stan. You know it makes sense. From Arsenal to the Bundesliga, where Kai Havertz has become uh, someone who is almost in competition with Jason Sancho for the title of most coveted young player in the Bundesliga. He has been linked heavily with Manchester United and with Chelsea in a move that could be worth 50 million or more euros. However, our information is that Bayern Munich have engaged in negotiations with his current club, Bayer Leverkusen, with regards to transferring the player to the Allianz Arena. That would be a, a big disappointment for um, the Premier League suitors. However, uh, it's not a done deal. There are certainly a, a lot of things to be sorted out regarding um, any potential transfer with Havertz to Bayern. They have a long-standing interest in Manchester City's Leroy Zani, uh, which you reported uh, first on the Transfer Window podcast. Do you think Havertz is worth the money, uh, given his, uh, his age and the fact that this is his breakthrough season? Would his statistics do stand up very well um, in terms uh, of being related to Sancho in terms of goals and assists uh, and even games played, etc., etc. But um, it does seem to me that um, Havertz is maybe better value. Sancho being someone who, of course, is young and English. And as we know, therefore, the um, financial valuation gets um, somewhat inflated. Well, he'd certainly be cheaper in terms of wages. This is a standard strategy for Bayern Munich. It's to recruit from within the Bundesliga to take the best of the young talents from uh, the, the com competing teams in the Bundesliga, um, offer them the ability to remain in a league they understand and are comfortable in, 
and win silverware and uh, promote themselves to a higher level in the Champions League. Uh, obviously, give them substantially improved contracts. It, it's it's worked for them for a long time. A lot of the German players prefer to take that route. And um, as we've heard on the podcast, it's not such a controversial way to work within uh, within Germany. The clubs also um, don't have as much problem with selling to Bayern Munich as um, they would to uh, with selling to uh, a, a competitor in the Premier League. Um, uh, Premier League clubs are more reluctant to do those kind of um, club-to-club deals than Bundesliga clubs are to um, to Bayern Munich. Um, they are very much still pursuing Leroy Zanio. I think they're confident that they can get that deal done uh, this summer. Obviously, Zani's contract is a year further down the line at um, Manchester City. Uh, Manchester City were in a difficult position last summer and unusually were prepared to let the player speak to Bayern Munich and were prepared to discuss terms with Bayern Munich for an individual that they did not want to lose who was at a, uh, an age um, where you would expect him to further develop, who was uh, of great um, importance to them on the field, even though he had difficulties with Pep Guardiola and Pep Guardiola wasn't using him as much as he would like to be used. Um, Bayern are going down the route of um, making, rejuvenating their squad and 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 uh, focusing on these kind of attacking players. So you can see why there would be um, a particular incentive for them to secure Havertz as well in this window. Um, and it, I think what COVID has done, and we've just been talking about the problems Arsenal have with the the age structure they built into their squad and and the focus on on buying expensive ready-made talents. I think it has really put an emphasis on clubs. Um, if they are going to spend substantial monies in this market to do it for players who look like they will have good resale value going forward, whose wages shouldn't be so high because you're you're catching them at, at an early stage of the of the, the slope in which their their salaries go up um just trying to build some insurance into the deals um we see it with manchester united obviously manchester united had that strategy in mind long before covid happened but i think it, it's the the general tenor of the market is the clubs that do have money to spend are wanting to focus that money on younger players than it has ever been the case before. And in that case, I mean, historically, Duncan, we saw Mario Götzer leave for um, to uh, Bayern Munich and also Michael Ballack as well um, from Leverkusen and Dortmund, respectively, and continue their careers there. Uh, I think with the interest that there is in Timo Werner, who appears to be very close to signing for Chelsea. And in Jadon Sancho, Bayern are being, I think, quite efficient in their um, targeting of Havertz in the sense that they're looking at the um, the fees that would be paid for those other two players who they were interested in and thinking, OK, let's go for Havertz instead. This is quite classic, as you said, uh, Bayern Munich, um, take the best players from your rivals, um, develop them, uh, coach them, and turn them into champions. And of course, the draw of Bayern Munich for any young German player is very, very strong. Interesting news from Serie A, where uh, the effects of the lockdown and the shutdown in football um, have been felt throughout the league. Uh, they are about to restart. Um, and Juventus, the current champions and uh, leaders in the Scudetto Challenge, a club who spent uh, enormous amounts of money in the last two years recruiting very high-profile players Obviously, Cristiano Ronaldo being the most high profile, but also um, taking advantage of 
players under freedom of contract as well, but offering them uh, immense wages in order to uh, come to the Juventus Stadium in Turin. Have, Duncan, run out of money, it seems, and are now looking to trade players to um, find a way of strengthening their squad for their campaign next season. Uh, this obviously has uh, a lot of implications with regards to who will and will not be uh, moving uh, to the old Grand Old Lady in Turin this summer. Most, I guess, famously, uh, the return of Paul Pogba, which now looks unlikely uh, to Juventus anyway. Um, how do you think this is going to impact the actual transfer window with regards to the merry-go-round of cash, Duncan, where we used to seeing money being invested and then recycled um, throughout uh, the European clubs? Well, I think with Juventus, you've got another case of a club that has pushed itself to the limit to try and achieve success in the field. In their case, the, the pursuit has been of the Champions League. That They've got close on a couple of occasions. They wanted to get over the line. Cristiano Ronaldo was part of that obviously. Um, but Cristiano Ronaldo was also part of a, of a marketing strategy for the club and they felt they could make the numbers work and, um, and, and couple that with success in the field and, and develop the revenue that way. Um, unfortunately, they have been hit hard by COVID. The revenue or the majority of the revenue stops coming in and suddenly running your club on the edge of its resources, as they've been doing, looks dangerous. And you couple that with a strategy of buying experienced players, which is what they've done. Um, you know, they, they have a huge um, roster of players in total. They uh, loan a lot of the younger players to other clubs and keep control of them um, for resale purpose or, or for promotion into their team. But they have had no hesitation about signing players in their late 20s. Obviously, Cristiano Ronaldo in his 30s, well into his 30s, although he is in many ways an exception because you can easily see him performing at the top level until he's 40. That's his, his personal ambition and he doesn't show any signs of, uh, of looking as though he's going to fail to achieve that. But when you stack all your resources into older players and you get into a market where there is a limitation of money and you want to shift some of those older players out, it suddenly becomes uh, difficult. And, and I think that's what they're seeing now. The word I have from several people um, talking about deals that Juventus had been looking at, uh, players have been interested in, is basically they've run out of cash and they've said, we cannot do these deals. We've got to get players out first and we might, even if we get those players out, we might not be able to do deals. So you, we've talked about Gonzalo Higuain, um, who I think is the third highest paid player in the club on a salary of 7.5 million net. They want to shift him out. They are, I'm told, more than happy to get him out without transfer fee as long as they can get those wages off their books. Two players um, which you would not expect Juventus to be trying to sell, and I don't think they would be in normal circumstances, are Douglas Costa um, and Miralem Pjanic, um, both players that, who have had... Uh, numerous suitors in uh, in past windows um, and players who Juventus have decided to retain. Those two are both available. Again, it's a case of getting wages off the books. Um, with Douglas Costa, they really like him as a player, but they feel that uh, they don't get enough return for his salary because he's of his injury record and that he doesn't condition himself as well as, as they would expect for a Juventus player, so they're prepared to cash in there. Um, I'm told that they're looking to raise between 60 and 70 million euros between those two players. I think if you were talking a summer ago, you'd be looking at 60 or 70 million euros for each of those players. And I don't think there's any guarantee they'll get 60 or 70 between the two of them. I think other clubs know that they're in a difficult situation and they know that they want to dump those wages. So they will be playing the game of, well, you need them off your wage book. We will maybe countenance taking them for a free transfer or a minimal fee, but we're not going to pay that full sum. Adding to the complications, they have Paolo Dybala, who 
as we know, they were ready to sell last summer. Um, extensive conversations with Premier League clubs, Manchester United and Tottenham Hotspur in particular, having very serious goes at signing Dybala. Dybala refusing those deals and deciding he preferred to stay in Italy. He has had a good season there. Um, he's extremely popular with the supporters. They, in principle, that would be a player they could sell and, and could probably make reasonable sums for and certainly move a lot of wage off their salary bill. But Dybala, I'm told, is so popular with the fans that is an impossibility. And on top of that, they have Dybala now asking for a new contract and expecting a pay rise. So they not only have to retain Dybala, they have to find money to um, to keep him happy uh, at the club. So it, it's it's a complicated window for them. I'm told it's it's a worrying. There's there's proper concern at Juventus over how this window is going to transpire for them, and it, it's a very different circumstance to what we're used to with Juventus, where you know, summer after summer they have improved their squad and spent significant amounts of money on improving their squad and and that will have repercussions throughout the transfer chain because they won't be um, pushing money into the market this summer they'll be trying to take money out of the market this feels like it's going to become an increasingly familiar scenario duncan um we've spoken uh, a lot in the last few weeks and some of our uh, eminent guests have also uh, said the same thing. Um, you look at Barcelona, uh, a club who spent in excess of 250 million euros on Usman Dembele and Philippe Coutinho, now looking to offload those players in terms of their contracts and salaries, either on loan or on trade deals. Uh, Real Madrid, who've always been the benchmark for uh, the transfer records being set uh, in terms of money paid. Also uh, willing to trade players. Just feels like the, we know that we're entering a very different market um, in the midst of what's happening globally with regards to finances and the pandemic. With Juve as well, as you rightly said, it seems like um, there will be less money injected. I mean, <laughs> we're going to stick our neck out. We could probably say this could be the um, least expensive transfer window in history coming up in terms of money actually laid out. That would be the expectation. I, talking to people who are involved in the market, the message that's come across over the past week or two is that this is still very fluid. There is movement there. There are offers being made. There, you know, the inquiries are more serious. And that's been provoked by the return to training and the return to playing in some countries. So Germany and, and Spain are back now. But this all comes with a caveat of let's see how long we manage to make this last for. So these proposals to do deals um, such as Ansu Fati are on the basis that we can make the Premier League run and complete the season and have a start date for the next season. And we know the television revenues are there. So a, a big degree of uncertainty over revenue stream for next season will go away. Uh, we won't know when we get spectators back. So we don't know when we get match day revenue but we do know that we're not going to be bleeding dry on on broadcast revenue. But we need to see if this pro if project restart works, which gives you, and we're going to talk about this later in the podcast, it gives you a sense of the uncertainty and of the risk the leagues and the clubs are still taking and trying to get football going again. And they're not committing to major spends either on, on salary or on transfer fees until they have a, a sense that this project is actually going to work. Um, so bottom line, they're not sure of yet. <sighs> then you get this 
extremely unpredictable situation of if everything plays again, which of the clubs have had so much damage done to them by the, the three months of um, missing revenue and which don't have the, the liquidity to get through another unknown number of months without uh, spectators in the stadium that they have to dump players cheap. We don't know that yet. People are trying to guess that. We know some clubs are in, in serious bother. But in a sense, if you have enough clubs who do have to sell and you have enough clubs who are confident enough about the revenues to say, okay, well, this is a buyer's market. Let's take advantage of the clubs that are open to selling. That could mean that the overall drop in, in fees isn't as high as some people are predicting. You, you have more deals at lower cost um, because clubs are open to selling where they wouldn't be selling. And, you know, we've seen in the Premier League over the last few years that clubs have become very reluctant to sell any of their desirable players um, within the division. It's become extremely difficult for even the, the, the top clubs in the league to pick off um, valuable players from Southampton's um, Crystal Palace. Manchester United did it with Aaron Wan-Bissaka, but they paid a record fee for a, a specialist fullback. They did it with Harry Maguire, but they paid a record fee for a defender of any type. Liverpool, but earlier, did it with Virgil van Dijk, another record fee at the time for a centre-back. So it was real substantial amounts of money required to get a player from another Premier League club. I don't think that will be the case this summer. I think you will be able to do these deals at, at more realistic prices. And therefore, we might see some more of them uh, than we would do in normal circumstances. And therefore, the drop in, in spending might not be as high as, as some people are predicting. But it's really open-ended still. And that's the, the message I get when talking to people who are involved in this market. Is they, they, they still can't call exactly what's going to happen. Well, given the revenue deficit that we know clubs are facing, um, certainly mid-table to lower half of Premier League clubs will, I think, be more amenable to selling uh, valuable playing assets at a reasonable price to any prospective buyers. And that will mean that there will be money in the market and liquidity to be had. But at the same time, with debts to be paid off, then I don't think we'll be seeing um, the likes of investments, perhaps from clubs like Newcastle, or even Watford, who have been happy to pay in excess of £30 million for players um, in the recent past. And that will make it more difficult, obviously, in terms of um, the, the liquidity generally in the game. We have Tottenham, Ian, who obviously have taken a, a very yeah, substantial exactly. loan yeah. from the government and have put on record that they will not use that £175 million for the recruitment of players. So there's one club where you would have expected uh, pre-COVID a fairly substantial spend in the, in the window and they're now publicly committed to not using uh, taxpayer money to, to buy any players. Which is a shame really because we'd all kind of like to say that we're like, we've paid for that guy. <laughs> <laughs> we're his boss. Uh, so can you just play him please? So we, you know, if he's part of your fantasy team or whatever. You want to get some goals or a shout-out, you know, you'd be like, well, I am paying for this, guy, so can we just get it on, please? Speaking of Project Restart, there were two meetings again this week. One with the uh, captains of all 20 Premier League clubs, uh, as well as one member of player leadership uh, committees, as well as a second meeting on Thursday of the stakeholders, CEOs, stroke chairman in which the uh, rescheduled restart of the season was unanimously approved. Uh, the mood of the players, interestingly, um, had changed, I think, it, from speaking to several of those involved in that conversation, uh, had changed significantly in the sense that um, where there was caution and quite a lot of scepticism uh, three, even just three to four weeks ago um, with regards to the safety um, and health aspects of playing football um, 
again in the current environment seems to have um, evaporated almost uh, and because uh, the return of contact training and indeed friendlies between professional clubs which have taken place uh, in many training grounds over the past seven days have kind of convinced players that, well, you know, it's back to business as normal. Um, clubs have then taken up uh, this newfound enthusiasm from their playing squads uh, and uh, approved the restart next week. Now, Duncan, we obviously had two very, very important um, medical professionals on the podcast um, talking about the risks involved in rushing football back. Um, what we've heard so far is that despite the the science, which of course everyone debates with regards to following or not, that um, there should be um, a degree of, uh, a very serious degree of ensuring um, that safety and health are put first. However, um, full contact training has meant that there have been um, 11 v 11 games um, at training grounds. Uh, so far, we've had no increase in the reports of any players being infected by the COVID-19 virus as such. Uh, but the return to stadia and to competitive football still has a cloud hanging over it with regards to what the Premier League are asking for. For instance, um, masks uh, and facial covering will not be required on the bench. Um, and this week alone, we've had uh, the instance of Stoke City uh, calling off a game with Manchester United, again at the Carrington training ground, because their coach, Michael O'Neill, had tested positive. Are we asking for trouble here, Duncan, in terms of um, we've talked about the possibility of, of multiple infection of a squad of players, but the almost, I don't know, the overused phrase is integrity of competition with regards to the restart. What if a coach and worse, his whole staff were wiped out by the virus and had to quarantine and you end up with effectively a team playing a competitive Premier League football match, which has the potential to be worth hundreds of millions of pounds in terms of surviving in the Premier League or not, with no manager. Well, I, I think it's remarkable that the Premier League has allowed friendly matches during the, this period of preparation. So you're allowing unnecessary intermingling of squads and and uh, and coaching staff uh, before the, the the matches happen. And and we know that the the Championship clubs have um, presented a lot more positive tests than the Premier League clubs over um, their testing regime so far. When we were talking about Project Restart initially, there was no scope for friendly matches. We had Liam Rossignor on the podcast discussing how he would put together a pre-season um, ahead of uh, resuming the, the the championship. And he was very much, well, I know we're not going to have friendly matches and we're going to have to deal without having friendly matches because it's too much of a risk to do so. Yet, um, once we got into restart, we rushed pretty much into contact training and then said, okay, you can have friendlies as well um, at the training ground un un under particular circumstances. But bringing two sets of, of players, uh, two sets of clubs, two sets of staff together. They've also, um, as you said, they're allowing uh, players and staff uh, who are not on the pitch um, at these matches not to wear masks, which is very different from the Bundesliga protocol. Um, I know mask wearing is not uh, being required by the UK government, but it's very well established that masks, although not perfect protection, um, do reduce the risk of transmission. It's one of the reasons why Japan and, and South Korea and other Asian countries have, uh, have managed to have a, a lower um, rate of transmission than 
uh, European countries is there is a, a tradition of, of wearing masks when you're ill or during the flu season in those countries. And, and that has a, made it common practice during COVID and, uh, and helped reduce transmission. So it seems if you're, if you're trying to uh, maximise the safety of the players, if you're trying to make the Premier League the safest area of society, as the Premier League um, told the players they were doing in, in their own documentation, why not insist on masks for uh, non-playing individuals? Why not add that extra layer of protection? Why not say no friendly matches? Um, because, okay, tactically and from a physical point of view for the sport, very important part of your preparation. But in terms of dangerous transmission, it's obviously there. Interesting, Duncan. The, the compromise position, and I, and I say compromise in a very careful way, is that you're allowed to play friendly matches with another club who's within 90 miles of where you are uh, for reasons of travel. Um, and we understand that Derby County were um, scheduled to play Stoke City in a friendly match on Saturday this weekend, and I've had to cancel that because of the COVID uh, infections at the club, and are struggling now to find another club to play friendly against because of the restriction of being 90 miles within their particular district. Well, and, and Stoke City obviously are not going to be able to play friendly matches with their manager, Michael O'Neill, present because he is having to exactly. self-isolate for, for seven days. Remember, not the World Health Organization guidelines of 14 days. And we had Professor Dean Pile and um, Anthony Costello on, on last Friday's podcast, and both of them said they do not understand why the Premier League are going for a seven-day self-isolation period rather than the, the full... 14-day period. But what, what this incident with Stoke City and um, Manchester United and also, I, I guess, the repercussions for Derby County shows is how much damage one infection could potentially cause to the schedule. So let's, let's take the scenario of the first Premier League game of restart. You've got Aston Villa and Sheffield United playing what is a Really important match, both for Aston Villa's survival, for Sheffield United's chance of, of qualifying for the Champions League for the first time. They will get test results. They'll be tested earlier in the week, but they could get those test results on the day of the game. It could be the case that Dean Smith um, tests positive for uh, COVID and gets the results on Wednesday of that match. Um, having trained and worked with the team the previous couple of days because as we've explained in detail before premier league's testing protocol um, takes up to 48 hours to deliver results um, that means you can test positive and um, i've had a, a significant amount of time in which you were mixing with other staff and players at your club what do the premier league do in those circumstances do they postpone the match um, and say, well, we can't play that one because Aston Villa, who are trying to fight relegation, cannot use their manager. There's no way Dean Smith can be involved if he tests positive. He has to self-isolate by Premier League protocol for seven days. Or do they say, well, that's just tough luck. Um, no manager, uh, the, the assistants have to take charge of the team and the match has to be played. If they do, the risk involved in leaving the assistants who will have spent significant amount of time in Dean Smith's vicinity in the previous two days in the interim period between him taking the COVID test and the results being given to Aston Villa and uh, Dean Smith being asked to self-isolate, well, they will clearly be a risk to pass on the disease to Aston Villa players and to the opposition, and I suppose to the um, the officials at the match. Um, I think we, we don't have any coherent plan from the Premier League and what they do once you have infections in the camp. What, what has clearly been demonstrated by the, the, the testing regime is, again, something that Professor Peely said to us 
you cannot cocoon these squads. So first round of tests, we had six positive tests at, at three different Premier League clubs. Second round, which was three days later, that went down to two. Third round, four. Fourth round, we had zero positives and the great celebration of, look, it looks like we've got it under control. Fifth round, there's a positive test again. Sixth round, zeros, zero positive tests. Seventh round, a positive test again. What that clearly demonstrates is even if you get an entire league um, testing negative or almost an entire league, the, the, the players and, and staff that each club has chosen to be tested in a round because they don't test the entire staff in each round of testing. There's a limitation of a, around 60 tests per club per round. So even if you get a full set of um, negative results in one round, we're still on two occasions we've seen a positive come back in to that group, which means there is infection coming in from an external world, the UK, which has a substantial COVID problem, um, as is readily demonstrated by uh, case numbers and death rates compared to other European countries. There is the risk of that getting into the squads. Um, if you allow teams to carry on training and playing and just self-isolate the individuals who have tested positive, there's a risk of that spreading amongst the team. Um, and, and then you have the question mark of what do the Premier League do? If you get a, a significant outbreak amongst important players and teams who are playing matches that are relevant to uh, relegation, um, to European qualification, or more importantly, and I think this really is the, the weak point, if the manager comes down, with the disease? Do you force the clubs to um, play crucial games without the person responsible for deciding the tactics, deciding the training, making decisions on the pitch? So as much as we all welcome the return of football in England and indeed all over Europe, still questions unanswered and it seems issues which will not be resolved well, we don't know if they will be or not, but do we? Because they will present themselves as and when uh, football resumes. One thing that we know for sure is that this week's Donkey Award will be presented, which is good news for the three candidates who have been nominated. Uh, it's a very interesting um, nomination, and that is um, in light of the recent um, Black Lives Matter protests and the raising of, let's just say, a debate about certain statues. Um, are they uh, appropriate? Are they not? Are they relevant? Um, or should they be taken away and placed somewhere else? We've decided to award this week's donkey to the most inappropriate statue that we can think of in football. And for that, we have three, I think, very worthy candidates. I'm just going to open the golden envelope and find out who they are and present them to, of course, the man who makes judgment on the donkey, and that's Duncan himself. The first, well, you could probably have guessed this one, people. It's Eric Cantona. And the idea of erecting a statue in honour of his great great work in player-fan relationships. Um, we're not talking about Manchester-centred fans here, obviously. Uh, I'll leave you to um, either hear from Duncan on that or indeed just make your own conclusions. Um, maybe my personal favourite would be Dimitar Berbatov, who could be um, pictured in or posted in a statue um, with some kind of industrial uh, work tool as the most industrious player ever to play in the Premier League. Um, again, I'm sure the irony will not be lost on you. And last but not least is Josie Mourinho for endearing himself to home fans and supporters around the globe, wherever he's been uh, in terms of his behaviour stroke antics. Um, Duncan, over to you. Well, 
I, I do love the idea of um, statues floating in the air, which I think you would have to have with Eric Cantona at Selhurst Park. He's <laughs> <laughs> real. <laughs> with the seagulls around him. Maybe the seagulls could carry it. Uh, yes, or, or being pulled by a trawler or down the touchline at, at Selhurst Park uh, in midair, or or equally with um, with Jose Mourinho in, in mid leap down uh, the Old Trafford touchline or onto the Camp Nou pitch, um, following one of his uh, famous Champions League victories. But I, I, or a, I really, or a Stamford Bridge where he, where he put three fingers to the fans. I, I don't think he was actually. I don't think he was actually in midair during that one, so I I, I like the idea of, sure, a, of a leaping sure. statue of Jose Mourinho and at, uh, at Camp Now or uh, or Old Trafford. But I, I think Dimitar Berbatov um, gets this one because I think he'd give the best acceptance speech, having having uh, heard him talk about his languid style in the football field in a in a recent interview um, with our, with our friend of the podcast Gary Neville. Um, Berbatov's just brilliant in explaining it, um, why he ran so little on the field and simply said, well, I didn't need to run. I was, I had the, I had the game completely understood in my mind. I knew where I wanted to be. What's the point of wasting effort? I still scored all the goals. Um, and uh, yeah, I think he deserves it just for the, the, the self-confidence with which he explains um, what was a, a great um, style of football to watch one of the Premier League's most enjoyable footballers. I'd like to take the opportunity as well to, to doff my beret, as it were, if I can, uh, to Dave Kidd, uh, who's the chief sports writer of the Sun, who memorably once wrote, uh, and it should be said, Dave is a big Fulham fan, um, that when Berbatov played at Fulham and he brought that ball down out of the air, um, during a game, uh, everyone can look it up on YouTube, but you'll find it yourselves. Um, he said that he had all the aplomb and, um, and beauty of a 60s French film star smoking a jetan <laughs> well, well, simply uh, treating the ball like it was a balloon. Um, I think that was a nice um, phrase to use to describe both the brilliance and the lack of industry of the great Dimitar Berbatov. That's it for today's Transfer Window podcast. We hope you have enjoyed what you've heard. And if so, please return the favour and log on to iTunes. Give us a five-star review. And as you know, that will increase our community and increase the debate as well. Speaking of which, if you wish to continue engaging with us, please do. Um, do it on our social media channels. At Transfer Podcast is where you'll find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Duncan is at Duncan Castles. I'm at Garbo SJ. And we will be happy to continue anything that you've heard in today's podcast or indeed in the podcasts that have preceded this one. It just leaves us to say that we will see you next week through the transfer window. Until then, stay safe, be well. And thanks for listening.